Hello, you are listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast with Ali Maxwell and with George Ellick. George, you're a year older than when we last spoke. Your <laughs> birthday on, on Monday the 18th of November, for those who'd like to note it down for next year. The uh, same as Peter Schmeichel and ex-Oxford United legend Chrissy Allen. Chrissy Allen and Peter Schmeichel. Yeah. That's quite good. Yeah. I think, I, I think, and I'm going to have to look up as I say it, that I share a birthday, yes I do, with President of the United States, Donald Trump. So I'd rather be Peter Schmeichel and Chrissy Two Allen. Two very similar men, I must mm. say. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, look, what I wanted to ask before we started was, did you have a nice birthday weekend? Because I know you were able to stretch it out basically from Friday lunchtime <laughs> until arguably still some way into this week. Yeah, yeah, I've given myself a couple of days off um, and it's been very nice, thank you. Um, all very good. Oxford, Ipswich being called off on Saturday due to international call-ups was quite handy um, because it meant that I could continue the celebrations for as long as possible. And um, so, yeah, it's been a very good weekend, thank you. Great. Well, I haven't got you a present. It feels to me like we play a lot of golf and there's always a prize for the winner and that winner tends to be you, I'd say, like 80% <laughs> of the time. So I feel like I give you... Probably more gifts than anyone else already. Um, well, you're, buying, you're buying me lunch on uh, on Tuesday, I think, aren't you? Anyway, this so is true. Fine. Lunch in Alicante on Tuesday. There's one to pique the interest of the listeners. Um, <laughs> anyway, look, we're not going to touch too much on the results over last weekend. Um, there were a lot of home wins, only home wins, actually, in League One, including Bolton moving into positive figures for the first time this season, having started on minus 12. Cruelly, there's potential that they might be docked further points uh, due to not fulfilling that game earlier on in the season against Doncaster and one against Brentford at the very end of last season. So we'll wait and see early this week what happens there. Um, and in League Two, where well, we've got new leaders, Swindon back to the top of the table after a fantastic away win. You had Northampton beating Crew 4-1 and they're moving into the playoff places. Port Vale got a win. Thank God for that in terms of uh, my betting show <laughs> campaign. Uh, and some good away wins as well. Scunthorpe and um, Plymouth beating at Forest Green and also Walsall getting a much-needed win after six defeats in a row. But this is a Q&A podcast. Uh, thanks to those who follow us on Twitter for sending in some really good questions. A lot of these are specific to this season, but also there have been some quite nice ones um, for us to go back through, do a bit of research on uh, over the last uh, decade or so, and we're going to get straight into it. I guess the simple one to kick us off, George, and a nice one as well is biggest surprises of the season so far we're at a stage of the season where we've been talking about this stuff every week and it's possible that some of the things that we now hold to be true and obvious were not that obvious uh, when we did our pre-season predictions so I wanted to start with you and it could be teams managers players whatever really what, what have been your biggest surprises of the season so far I've looked mainly at teams and I think one that maybe kind of flies under the radar a bit because they're quite a big club and it's not a huge shock to see where they are in the league is Swansea. Um, Swansea are currently fourth in the table uh, with 29 points from 16 games and they lost Graham Potter who was seen to have done such a good job last season by steering Swansea to a mid-table finish that he got, he was the first person to make that step up from a championship job mm. to a Premier League job for a long time and um, they lost Ronnie McBurney in the summer as well. So for Steve Cooper to come in for his first senior job and without their kind of talismanic striker to make, improve them as a team and to kick them on up the table, 
Um, I think it's easy to forget what a good achievement that is. Mm. Um, Wickham are obviously a very clear other one and anyone who says that they expect Wickham to be top of the league uh, by the kind of middle of November, I think is telling Porkies, um, <laughs> having lost just one game. Um, so nothing too, um, you know, uh, fairly predictable, um, that one. The, the other one that I guess is, is diff- surprising in a different way is probably that the trajectory of Neil Harris's career um, is something I did not see coming. Okay. Um, the first part of it, leaving Millwall um, after a disappointing start to the season, is um, not that surprising. But him getting the Cardiff job last week on the back of that, um, I think is is a bit of a shock. I didn't expect um, Harris's next job after Millwall, if he did leave, to be uh, one at a arguably bigger club mm. and, and one with, with possibly um, you know stronger aspirations going forward. That's interesting. So do you think that that might not be a... Good appointment, I suppose, is the simple question. A lot of Cardiff fans, again, not trying desperately not to use Twitter as the only barometer for, for, for fan feeling, but the replies under the announcement were pretty negative, I think it's fair to say. Well, it was just quite funny that they said in the press release when appointing him, that, sorry, when, when sacking Harris, that they wanted to look for someone younger. Definite tick, but I think pretty much every manager in, in the BFL is younger than Neil Warnock. Um, and they wanted someone with maybe a more attacking style of play. And, and that is not what Neil Harris is going to bring at all. I mean, it, it, I suppose it works in a way that the squad itself is probably built quite nicely for Harris to take charge of with his more attritional style. And maybe we shouldn't pigeonhole him too much after just one job because you do know that sometimes would, would his managers... Said, would you have said in Millwall's first season in the Championship when they did rather well, would you have said that they had a very defensive style then? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was particularly expansive. Um, I mean, they went on a on a ridiculous run towards the back end of the season, which got them towards the playoffs, which the data suggested was was basically a, a purple patch and a bit of a fluke. Mm. So um, I wouldn't say that it was ever built upon a, a, a kind of expansive attacking um, remit, no. Um, but as I said, when it's someone's second job, uh, this is something I'm going to talk about a bit later uh, under another question. You can't pigeonhole their style of play on the, on the back of one job because mm. you don't know what the brief is from the club. Um, you don't know you know, what they're being told behind the scenes. You don't know what the coaching staff are geared to do. Um, so you never know. Maybe he'll completely um, tear up what he's done previously. But but it doesn't... I, I, basically, if you told me in August that Neil Harris would be managing um, Cardiff, mm. I'd have thought that would probably have meant that Millwall were, were in the top six or seven and they'd pay the compensation needed to take him out of his yeah. contract. Yeah, absolutely. Good point there. I suppose in terms of any other surprises, um, Preston North End, I, I think, you know, a surprise of sorts that they are exactly where they are, but not from us that they would be up towards the top end of the table. I guess Stoke being so bad uh, is probably our biggest miss from the early season predictions in other divisions as you mentioned Wickham being right up there when we thought they'd be battling relegation um, but also Scunthorpe uh, being very poor Walsall being quite poor as well and Mansfield I suppose too not looking anything like the title contender we thought they'd be um, in terms of uh, next question Connor asked which managers are or could be most under pressure at the moment it seems to be that quite a few chairmen are pulling the trigger recently. It does feel like that, doesn't it? The last few weeks, especially down in League Two, where we lost three managers in three days last week. Uh, Presley gone from Carlisle, Jolly from Grimsby and Fletcher from Orient. Um, The dust is settling on those. We'll touch on them after this. But in terms of managers potentially feeling the strain, it's always difficult to to say someone's about to be sacked. So we will avoid that. But anyone particular feeling the strain, do you think? 
Yeah, I think, well, I mean, as you mentioned, the League Two managers are the ones who've paid the price in the last week or so. Um, I think the fact there's only one relegation spot meant it could have gone either way. Um, either clubs unwilling to sack managers knowing that relegation is less likely um, than it would have been otherwise. But I think maybe this is an occasion where clubs are basically not too concerned about um, tearing it up and starting again mm. um, in, in the knowledge that the instability that a sacking may cause um, shouldn't have too much of a detrimental effect given the one relegation spot. So I think it's gone the other way. Um, but the teams with a hell of a lot to lose are obviously the ones at the bottom end of the championship. And yeah. we've already we've already seen Huddersfield um, part company with Jan Siva. We've already seen Barnsley um, get rid of, of, of Daniel Stender as well. So, and, Stoke, and we've seen Stoke yeah. get rid of Nathan Jones. And I'm pretty sure that anyone reading, reading this question probably would have gone to Tony Mowbray, Paul Cook, Graham Jones and Jonathan Woodgate. Yeah. And I'll be pretty surprised if, I don't know, two of those are still in their job come January the 1st. Yeah, I think that's hard to argue. Certainly, I mean, it's it's with Graham Jones, it's difficult. It's early on um, and things started all right, but it does feel in the last few weeks like with the poor results, but not only that, with... I think on a personal level, it feels like it's, yeah, it's falling apart. I was going to say, so, but potentially the way in which he is handling those poor results and the way in which the fans um, perceive that, uh, I suppose. Um, at Paul Cook, you, you worry whether there's a... Uh, a sort of staleness is often the word used when a manager's been there for a while, especially one who's done really good things, which of course he has done with Wigan uh, and with Woodgate. Again, we're always told that Steve Gibson, the chairman, is incredibly patient uh, and stands by his decisions and the people that he appoints. Uh, and you wonder how much longer that can last, really, with just two wins from their 16 games. Um, in, in League One, I mean, it kind of feels almost only like Kenny Jackett at the moment. Uh, with, with him, it feels like the the disdain with which a large part of the fan base uh, have for him, it feels like it's gone so far that only a really long winning run could possibly help get them back on side. And even then, it would be so fragile as to potentially change again uh, during a bad spell. So uh, I would say Jacket probably in League One, that the, the, the disconnect between the underlying numbers, which we've banged on about a lot as being fine, as projecting Portsmouth to still be a, a top six team at minimum, uh, and the eye test, basically, watching this team at the moment. Um, you know, w- you and I have watched a couple of their recent games, and it is really painful to watch. So that's kind of an interesting uh, thing to keep an eye on in League One. And in League Two, I guess you're still looking at... Well, I was just going to say, on League One, I mean, I-, I don't agree with this at all, but how many more bad results does Phil Parkinson get before mm. the fans start <laughs> well, I think they're demanding kind of already another have, change? But, yeah. Yeah, well, I... I... I don't really understand what's happening with this takeover at the moment and where that is, how close that is to going through and what the new owners will, will look to do or want to do. But to to change manager within a matter of a month or so or two months would, would seem probably not ideal. But I, I do know what you're getting at. In League Two, I guess you're still looking at, at John Dempster, probably at Mansfield and saying, you know, hello, pal, will your team ever beat another team outside the bottom seven? Or is, or is that what it's going to be? Um, still haven't beaten anyone um, either above them or even around them. Just teams in the bottom seven. Uh, and Daryl Clark, obviously a six-match losing run with Walsall, uh, having weathered that storm and got a good win on the weekend against Cambridge. That's you know that's positive news. Whether someone, anyone really would would survive another you know five six game losing streak if that was to happen, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But otherwise, I think with Presley, Jolly, Fletcher, and Warnock gone in the last week or so. We might see the dust settle a little bit. Um, out of those three, George, Presley from Carlisle, 
not a huge surprise, but I don't think either of us thought he has to go. A jolly from Grimsby, definitely a surprise. Subsequent news that it was a foul-mouthed rant uh, at mm. a at some local journalists that 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 really sort of moved the needle for the Grimsby board. And Fletcher from Orient gone after 29 days, with them basically saying, "Wow, we really got this one wrong," and it was just a terrible fit in terms of a, a, a character, basically in terms of how he wanted to how he wanted to represent Orient. They were saying in 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 the community and engaging with the players and the fans and all a little bit strange there um which one of those most sort of notable i suppose for you i mean i think that the late orient one's the most notable um because it didn't last very long um and with carlisle uh, of the three managers he I mean, stephen presley's the one who's probably the, the you know the biggest name and has the most coaching pedigree behind him which isn't much but um but still the most of the three i mean it's interesting to me looking down the league two table now one relegation spot, but from 15th down, you've got 15th Macclesfield, who made a change. Gabriel Choffey, yeah, Crawley is still there. But then 17th Orient, 18th Grimsby, both made a change. 19th Hurst still there. And then 20, 21st, 22nd, 23rd and 24th. So Carlisle, Walsall, Oldham, Morecambe and Stevenage have all made changes. So you've got two teams. Walsall, Walsall haven't made a change. Not sorry, this season. sorry, yeah. sorry. That was the other one. So you've got three teams. You've got Walsall, Scunthorpe. And um, Crawley are the only three teams from 15th down who haven't made a managerial Crazy. change um, in mid-November. So um, the interesting part now is that you'd, you'd have to expect the majority of those teams are going to be fighting it out with each other to try and avoid being 24th at the end of the season. Um, but with most of them already having played their first hand and, and, and kind of twisted, I guess. Um, and I'm pretty confident that, that both Warsaw and Scunthorpe are going to be on an upward trajectory. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if there are any more changes amongst those teams. It wouldn't be a massive surprise if, if two or three of those clubs um, you know, have, have, have made their first change in the dugout this season, but maybe not their last. I'm actually drinking a cup of coffee as we record in homage to Gabriele of, mm. of Crawley, such an entertaining team uh, to watch this season, even if recent results haven't been quite so positive. Uh, now- quite, um, quite nice that we were, when you and I were at the Mind Media Awards the other day, which was a fantastic uh, evening um, with Mind um, kind of shining a light on good work in the media, across media, um, you know, showing uh, mental health issues to the wider audience mm. and helping people out. And one of the winners um, was a very uh, good and impressive vlogger called Rosie Cappuccino and you turned to me when her name was announced and said I think that's Gabrielle Chioffi's daughter which was absolutely fantastic yes. so managing to, to squeeze into EFL banter for us whilst we were um, enjoying the award ceremony when you spend as much time thinking and talking about the EFL as we do it's difficult to avoid uh, uh, trying to crowbar in as many references as you possibly can wherever you are um, now p- potentially the most thought-provoking question across the whole EFL over the last few years and one that I have thought about we've thought about a lot and I'm still not sure I have the the exact answer for but why over the past few years have teams found it increasingly difficult to bounce back from relegation from the Premier League to the Championship at the first time of asking? There don't seem to be many yo-yo teams anymore like there were 10 years ago. Uh, it's a good question. I'm going to sprinkle some data or really sort of contextualise what the question is here. I think we we all recognise now that actually across the EFL... It's a very different landscape to what it was even probably six or seven years ago. So he said 
you know, he's going back 10 years there. I'm going to read out the last five years of, of teams who have come down from the Premier League. Um, obviously, this season, we've got Fulham, who are currently seventh. Uh, they have not changed their manager. I'm going to go through where teams came and whether they sacked their manager, essentially. Cardiff, 14th, and they have sacked or they've changed managers. Huddersfield, 19th currently. They sacked their manager. So neither of the three or none of the three doing particularly well. Last season, it was Stoke who came 16th. They sacked Rowett. West Brom came 4th. They sacked Darren Moore. Swansea came 10th. They didn't sack Graham Potter, but did have him poached away. Uh, Hull, 18th. And they sacked Slutsky. Middlesbrough came fifth. And they sacked Gary Monk. And Sunderland came bottom. They sacked both Simon Grayson and Chris Coleman. Uh, going back the season before, we finally have a team that gets promoted. Newcastle won the league, not sacking Rafa Benitez, as you might imagine. Uh, Norwich came eighth, but they did sack Alex Neal. That was uh, an underwhelming season for them. Villa came 13th. Of course, they did sack Roberto Di Matteo. And the year before, slightly better, Hull came fourth and won the playoffs uh, with Steve Bruce in, in charge. Bruce. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> babe, babe Ruth. Steve you, Bruce. It sounds like you you just made him uh, Spanish. Steve Bruce. Yes. <laughs> one, one, one of your accents. Rafa Benitez and Steve Bruce. Um, <laughs> um, Burnley came first. They did not sack Sean Dyche. And QPR came 12th. They came down, and I'd forgotten this, with Chris Ramsey in charge, and they did make a change. So... There's the, there's the data, I suppose, George. Not a lot of success in recent years. A lot of managers failing to live up to fairly lofty expectations. And, and the question is, why? So over to you. Well, I think that part of this, I mean, I wrote an article um, for The Athletic last week about the um, yo-yo clubs between League One and the Championship. And I think part of the reason why that's happened is because of this issue that you're talking about, where... Um, the championship is now clogged full of teams who were relegated from the Premier League and haven't been able to get back up there. So are on the receiving end of parachute payments um, and they're all in the league together, which is causing a discrepancy within within the championship itself. I, I think the reason why that's happening is partly because of the fact that the bottom end of the Premier League is quite bad uh, and quite consistently bad. I mean, you, you see teams... Um, basically getting promoted, keeping the majority of their squad. If they're good enough to then get to stay up again, um, they're normally picked off pretty quickly. And I would say over time, unless you're able to really try and flex your muscles with your spending power, your squad is just dismantled and you end up returning back to the championship a much worse team than you were when you went up. So naturally, if that happens, it's going to be much harder to to, to go back up again. Um, and the the wealth that the struggles of these clubs um, have in the championship means that it's way more competitive to do it again. I mean, the, you can't legislate for teams being as bad as Stoke were last season and as bad as they are this season, given their budget compared, compared to most of the teams in the league. I do not understand why that is. I don't think that's going to be a trend that we see particularly often, even though it may have happened a couple of times. Um, but you're looking at, you know, you look at the Swansea team that came down compared to the one that came up. Um, you look at the West Brom team that came down compared to the one that came up. It's just they they just come back worse yeah. um, because of the nature of the shark circling, picking off your best talent. So, you know, it couldn't be shown more starkly than Aaron Moy going on loan to Brighton this season. I mean, that is just ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> Huddersfield losing their best player to a team who are fighting off relegation on loan purely as a means to try and keep them at the club or at least protect their asset. 
Well, um, and because these players uh, have so much power now that I don't think players basically accept a, a relegation or certain a certain stature of player doesn't mm. really accept a, a relegation, uh, doesn't really take responsibility to try and make it right the, the next season. But the majority of them, certainly in the last few years, we've seen a few teams struggle, not least Stoke and, and Swansea to some extent as well. Um, with with players basically saying, nah, I don't really fancy that. Um, and that sort of apathy, I suppose, is quite a difficult thing to, to turn around because just in pure recruitment and turnover uh, purposes, you've got so much work to do just to just to get back to sort of a solid base before, uh, on which you can build. But I think your point about teams being worse when they come down that they've gone up is a really, really interesting one. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, look, this season, I guess we expect Fulham to to get higher than their current position of seventh, but it's not absolutely guaranteed. Uh, it's certainly not guaranteed that Scott Parker will last the season if they go on a, a poor run that jeopardises a, a playoff push at, at minimum. Um, Cardiff, you, you can imagine sort of consolidating, I guess, now under Neil Harris uh, and Huddersfield under Cowley. Well, we'll see where they can get to from, from their current position of 19th. But, you know, it, it's essentially set them back um, a, a fair few months just coming down uh, with Jan Seawet in charge. So plenty to, to look at there. Before we move on to uh, other questions, I suppose, uh, that have been sent in, we, we're going to touch on Macclesfield Town. Now, this is a pretty urgent situation at the moment I suppose and uh, Simon Hughes has written an article for The Athletic today really detailing everything that's going on the main issues and well plenty plenty more Uh, and George you know Macclesfield fulfilled their game on the weekend a nil-nil draw with Mansfield only 24 hours earlier the stadium had been padlocked because staff pay was overdue for a 10th month in a row this is almost a year on now just in terms of what you're reading, the detail from Simon's piece, this is an increasingly urgent situation with some people fearing that, that Macclesfield could basically face the same fate as, as Berry if things don't get better, essentially by next payday, which is in 10 days' time. Yeah, it's all pretty grim um, reading at the moment for, for Macclesfield fans. It seemed like if they couldn't fulfil that game against Mansfield, it was going to be... Um, the first nail in the coffin and it kind of feels like after what I said last week um, possibly people are starting to understand that this is a pretty severe situation and the fact that Simon Hughes has written this piece in The Athletic will hopefully only go further to do so. Um, it sounds pretty miserable stuff. I mean, from everything we know about Amar Al-Khadi, um, he is the definition of a of an absent owner uh, and one who isn't even a benevolent one in any sense of the word at all. Um, As the piece from from Simon says, he lives in Ibiza. He is blaming Brexit for his cash flow issues, aren't we all? Um, But he, uh, but realistically, he's doing nothing at all to help the club. There's also Uh, hasn't got any structure there at all. The the club has no chairman, no chief executive, no general manager, no commercial manager. The person below Alcardi in terms of responsibility is the media manager now, Alcardi's been in charge for quite a long time now. and it's 15 years, isn't it? Yeah, but he's claiming issues with cash flow, etc., etc. But 10 months of late wages, the urgency is, is really, really severe now. Now, there is a potential um, buyer who is Joe Seeley, uh, Les Seeley's son. It's, it's so difficult at a point of urgency to fully vet potential owners because 
they are so necessary in order to keep this this club alive. But if you read Simon's piece, uh, you know he speaks to Joe Seeley and and well, what what sort of what sort of feeling did you get from him as a potential saviour of Macclesfield? Well, I mean, it, it strikes me as positive reading towards the end of the piece. I mean, Seeley says he hopes to have a deal in place quickly. I think it's coming to a head. He says he's put a lot of his own money over the years deep down. I think he still really wants the best for the club. My my only concern is alarm bells ring as someone who as an Oxford fan, um, has seen what an owner like this can do. Um, Firas Kassam um, was a parasite on the club, um, to be honest, and continues to, to be one, given that he owns the, the stadium. And so often, so often before he sold the club eventually, and even since, you get these sound bites of, of positivity and optimism and these fanciful ideas that deep down he wants the best for the club. And he says, he says in local media still that he's a fan. And these... Snippets from Alcardi just suggest the same. Um, I think any notions that he is um, going to to act out of the you know you know out of the bottom of his heart to to improve things is, is probably fanciful. Um, the fact that Seely himself thinks that, that a deal is close is, is obviously very very positive, and fingers crossed it's the same. But um, quite often in these deals with with owners who have done very little to help the club, um, I'd advise caution um, ahead of optimism because. Um, there'll probably be a few more twists and turns before this is, uh, you know, before it's resolved. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, look, if if you want to read more about this situation, uh, as we said, Simon Hughes writing a piece for The Athletic. Uh, if you haven't got a subscription to The Athletic, then you can sign up. If you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20, uh, the article is on the EFL section of the site. Uh, and it's by Simon Hughes. So we would recommend uh, that as reading around the fairly dire situation across the EFL at the moment in terms of teams, their finances, sustainability and, and their future. Moving on to, to some of the more questions that we've had sent in, George. Uh, Edward wanted to know uh, whether we think that the new goal kick rule that allows players to receive the ball inside the box has generally improved the quality and likelihood of teams building from the back. I, I, I think it probably has, don't you? I mean, it's... <laughs> it, it, it opens up a bit more space in the pitch for teams to do it. We've seen plenty of teams um, take that on as a as a, a, a tactic, I suppose. Uh, some to more extreme extent than others. Um, but uh, look, it benefits teams that want to build possession from the back. Um, but it's not just for them as well, because there will be plenty of teams who feel that their strength or one of their strengths is out of possession, pressing high and, and recovering the ball in dangerous areas, which can lead to basically higher quality chances, higher quality shots. And I think this, in a way, helps them as well because, you know, it is quite an extreme thing to do to set yourself so deep and and, and play the ball on the floor to your centre-backs or to, to whoever's there. Uh, and it does mean that you're going to be in, in trouble if you lose the ball in your own final third. So I think it's cool. Uh, I, I've enjoyed it and I've got used to it very quickly. I think across our divisions that we cover, we're lucky because we've got so many different styles of football, whereas in the Premier League, it's slightly more homogenous, really, um, which means that it's not it's not become too much. Not not every team's doing it. I dare say the majority of teams still aren't doing it. Um, but for those who want to do it, it's been a nice, uh, a nice addition to the league, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really add anything more to what you've just said. I mean, I think it's been a, a nice addition that's probably in, in places aided a certain style of football. I don't think it's revolutionised the game. Um, it's something that you notice happening one or two times um, here and there. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone, unlike some other changes that have been made, 
over the summer. Um, I don't know there's anyone who's going to be kicking off about um, about changing this rule back to the way it was before. Nice. Uh, Jordan wanted to know, and this is quite an interesting question, another tough one. Some real teasers being sent in by you guys this week, so thanks for that. Uh, last few years have seen some formations become in vogue in the EFL, like Wolves' 3-4-3, Luton's 4-Diamond 2. Which team is playing the formation slash tactical slash stylistic setup that others will copy next year? He, he's right. There is almost always a system that becomes in vogue. Um, uh, it's a funny one, isn't it? Uh, you know, you think about Bielsa's leads because when you think about this question, you're really looking for a team whose performance seems to be linked to a system more, you know, to a larger extent than a team whose performance might be linked to um, man management or even just quality of players. So you have to look at Bielsa's leads first and foremost because of the level that they've been playing at over the last eighteen months and and where they were before. But I don't think anyone's really attempting to copy Bielsa's leads. It's almost like, you know, other managers in the EFL are sort of like, nah, I don't think I can get my players to do that, to be honest. I don't think I can get them to sleep at the training ground and, you know, absolutely ruin their summers with the most gruelling pre-season of all time and then an unbelievably uh, difficult style of play to maintain over the course of a 46-game season. Um, So while I hope that, you know, his time here will have plenty of an effect positive effect on on managers and that young British managers and others will learn plenty from Bielsa's methods it's hard to imagine someone being able to replicate it I think in the next few years is there any anything else that you flagged up on this question yeah it's not necessarily a formation um this but more a style of playing that's something we touched on a couple of weeks ago um I'm not convinced that Nottingham Forest uh, have the staying power to really compete at the top end of this at the table purely just on the basis of um, their quality, but I do think it's interesting how Lamucci has, has taken over a team and set them up to be very, very comfortable out of possession. We've seen such a, a big trend in recent years of, of clubs in the Championship and clubs basically throughout the EFL trying to play a more technical passing style of football. And I think there's there's something in Lamucci here saying, right, let's not try and win the battle for possession. Let's not try and control the game on the ball. Let's be a team very, very solid, very happy out of possession and one that can break quickly and score goals on the counter-attack. Um, and you look at the top half of the of the um, championship at the moment, I'd say the only other team that you could really say that applies to is Sheffield Wednesday as well. And it's always been part of kind of Gary Monk's playing style ever since he left that first job at, at Swansea where maybe he was, his remit there was to play the, the more expansive style. He is someone who, again, is very happy to, to relinquish control um, in terms of possessional control, let's say. So I just wonder if maybe we'll see a few more teams. Um, and you look at you know you look at teams in the championship who've been promoted recently. Wolves were not a possession-based team. Newcastle were barely really a possession-based mm. team, given the quality they had in midfield. Um, so I, I wonder if that's something we'll see more of uh, in in the coming seasons. Yeah, I, I think just having a look at League Two as well. Um, you've got Swindon Crew and Forest Green this season, uh, all at the, the the top of the table. And all playing a, a, a style of football that we've seen develop over the last few years at the very much at the top end of the game and dripping down somewhat into League Two, which previously had, had just been known as a as a cloggers division, really. And it feels like each year there's like one more team that starts going short in League Two. You know, by which I mean just a, a more of a focus on possession play and on keeping the ball and on playing the ball on the floor and and short passing uh, in a way that we see more at at the upper echelons of the game. And with the success of these teams, I think it it 
it's possible that we'll see more and more attempts going forward at this level. Um, what's interesting is that all three of those teams, Swindon, Crew, Forest Green, they all press well, but they don't press like crazy. It's not like they're not trying to replicate, you know, Man City under Guardiola, but certainly Swindon and Crew, as well as being able to play you know, being very strong in possession, they're also very strong on the counter-attack as well. So clearly have a, a good idea of a shape, I suppose, and a, and a depth uh, out of possession that allows them that space to counter-attack. Forest Green, I suppose, in a different way, they've got such a good defensive record. There must be teams wondering, you know, trying to work out if that's just luck or if there's a method behind the way that they sort of soak up quite a lot of pressure uh, without actually giving up too many good shots. So uh, I guess outside of tactics, <laughs> we talk about Brentford's recruitment model a lot. Um, there must be plenty of teams of, of a similar size across, well, the bottom end of the championship and, and all across League One, when you remember where Brentford came from, you know, in the last 10, 15 years. Plenty of teams of a similar size who, who must look at that and think budget-wise we we could, in theory, do that. But it, it, no one's really had the, I suppose, the nous and I guess the just the trust in it to to continue with that system to to such an extent of Brentford but you know it's a it's an amount of work over a long period of time and it's a an amount of holding your nerve as well in the tough times when you have to sell players on and 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 go again um but there must be teams looking at that and thinking is there any way that we can you know change our future by by doing what Brentford have done um here's a good one actually sent in by CTOM on Twitter uh, who's actually my brother, Tom, uh, and he wants to know. He's obviously decided that I need to do a bit more work, so he's decided to give me a good, uh, a good research uh, task. Top five most successful EFL managers of the decade. George, there is six weeks left of this decade, starting 2010, finishing at the end of this year. Um, top five most successful EFL managers. There's so much at play here, isn't there? Because, you know, managers come and go really good ones sometimes reach the Premier League and we lose them for a bit but also good managers sometimes are good managers for a bit and then it seems like they're bad managers and then they're good managers again so uh, it's it's been an interesting one to look at let's go through what we think and you pick one to start and then I'll go for another one Chris Wilder uh yeah. sorry taking the the obvious one that's number um, one success um and you know he, he arrived in the EFL, uh, having taken Oxford into the league, um, yeah, that was first... that was 2010-11, wasn't it? So at the start exactly. of the decade, he's he begins his first, his first season exactly, yeah. and and did and did pretty well there for for a while before it fell apart. But then the job he he did it at, at Cobblers and Northampton, taking over the club when they were looked destined for a return um, to, to to well not a return for a for relegation to, to non-league, um, kept them up had a season of consolidation, took them up as champions into League One, left the club, um, who and they very quickly returned to League Two without his <laughs> um without his his guidance, uh, and then takes over a boyhood club, the club he supports, the club that he, he played for, uh Sheffield United, who had been um in you know League One for, for far too long. Um, five seasons they'd been there. Took them back into the championship, consolidation not for very long. And then into the Premier League, where he's now doing an incredible job. He is quite clearly the poster boy for all the FL managers to aspire towards. And it's impossible to say that anyone else's journey um, through the leagues has, has been, you know, he's done the best job of any FL manager without question. Um, interesting to note that someone said that they listened back to um, our first ever episode the other day. And I was, and I was not very complimentary about Chris Wilder. 
So I need to just quickly say that he did break my heart. And, you know, as any jilted lover, I was very keen when I was first on the airwaves to try and uh, discredit him, maybe. <laughs> but there's no there's no way that we can do that now. And, um, yeah, he deserves all the success he's going to get future England manager, Chris Wilder. Please do not go back and listen to our first episode, guys. That is a very rude thing to do. We do not want you to do that and we do not encourage you to do so. It's fairly grim listening, I think it's fair to say. OK, well, let me go uh, to who I had in, in spot number two. Uh, and look, once you get below Wilder, it is an absolute, I mean, it's just chaos. There are so many options, really. Uh, I'm going to go with Chris Hewton. One of the reasons why I've done that is uh, Transfer Marked have quite a handy page where you can look at the, basically, the, the records of managers at that level. Uh, and Chris Hewton, in this time period, has the best record in the championship in terms of points per game, uh, 206 games managed and 384 points at 1.84 per game. He's one of loads of blokes who have won two promotions from the championship in the last decade. Um, but that points per game record is better than Bielsa's at Leeds in three times as many games. So that shows how how high a level he's been at. Um, he started the decade lifting the championship trophy with Newcastle in May of 2010. Then he took Birmingham to the playoffs uh, then he went to the Prem for a bit with Norwich, then came back and, as we know, helped sort of change the course of, of Brighton's history and future uh, to take them to the Piet. No, you can't change the course of someone's history, can you? You can change the course of someone's future. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's what he did. Um, and, and he took them to the Premier League uh, and sort of helped to revolutionise things there. So I've got Hewton in number two. I don't know if you had him in your list at all. Um, I didn't. Oh, no. interesting. Okay. I didn't, but maybe an oversight. Um, who else have you up, got? I'm going to go for Neil Warnock. Yes. Um, who, if you take out the, the Leeds job, which didn't go particularly well, <laughs> absolutely staggering to think back that he was Leeds manager. Um, he started off the decade at QPR um, and, uh, you know. Turned Adel Terabd into Zidane. Well, and also, you know, it goes under the radar a bit, but he actually um, saved them from, from relegation at the um, in 2010, so the beginning of the decade. And then in the next season, um, a Tarabd, you know, a Tarabd-led um, team, Warnock QPR team, won the league, um, went up as champions um, before he was then uh, unceremoniously sacked the next season when they were in the Premier League, which always seems to be the way. The Leeds job didn't go, didn't go well, there's no denying that, but he also... You know, taking Cardiff up was, was a hell of an achievement. And uh, and then also the job he did at Rotherham as well, taking over late on in the season mm. and um, pulling off the great escape. So three, two promotions and a great escape um, for um, the EFL's uh, grandpa, let's call him, um, <laughs> who I think it's fair to say from what we're hearing um, is up for one last crack of the whip. But he says that um, a fair bit. So we can't say that it'll be his last job. But it's interesting to know where he's going to turn up next. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got Slavisa Jokanovic on my list as well. Um, I think he's had three and a half seasons at this level. So, and that's probably the bottom end, really, that you could that you could feasibly choose here. Um, but he took Watford up uh, in one season, playing some lovely stuff, as we know, with their lovely collection of, of players that the Pozzo family had put together for him. And, and he was the one to really fulfil the, the team's potential. Uh, he took over at Fulham when they were 12th. Uh, he had half a season there to consolidate. And then the next season, they really started purring. Despite losing that summer, McCormack and Dembele, who were considered their certainly their best goal scorers, probably two of their best players as well. That next season 
we'll remember because it was, you know, this is when we started doing the pod really and we, we didn't expect a huge amount from Fulham. And around November, December time, I remember seeing them play against Brentford, I think it was. And that was a real penny dropping kind of moment uh, that this Fulham team were on their way to something. Uh, and sure enough, they had a great second half to that season, lost in the playoffs, uh, semi-finals. And then the season after that, after a poor start, they went on that crazy run uh, and won promotion uh, again via the playoffs. So for Jokanovic, I've just got great memories of watching his two promotion teams. Uh, he he hasn't done a, a poor job anywhere. He hasn't really had a poor season anywhere and playing such good football as well. So I've got Slav on my list. Did you have Slav on your list or are our lists basically completely different? I know, I had, I had Slav. I had Slav. Okay, um, so who else have you got? A couple to choose between now, and you know they're both, I guess, the the young bucks of um, of the EFL. You know the two managers who could be mentioned in the same breath as Chris Wilder in a couple of years, and that's Gareth Ainsworth and, uh, and Danny Cowley. Oh, um, Alex Neal's a bit upset here. Yeah, fair enough. That is fair <laughs> enough. That is fair enough. Um, but I do think the reason why these two, when you look at the uh, where the clubs that they've taken over are now in, in in comparison to where they were, you know, when they first came in. Um, if Danny Cowley can somehow lead Huddersfield towards the right end of the table this season, then, you know, his job isn't... The, the work that he's done, both at Lincoln and then here, wouldn't be too dissimilar at all to what Chris Wilder's managed in the decade. Mm. And similarly, if Gareth Ainsworth can get Wickham promoted, I think that would pretty much eclipse any job um, that anyone's done in the EFL uh, in that last 10 years. I think that would have to rank pretty highly in, in terms of, of season... Uh, achievement. Absolutely. So, um, I guess leaving the last pick a little bit open-ended by saying that you know the two managers who could be mentioned in the same breath, who with a good successful season this season, um, could sneak in the back door would be would be those two. Yeah, I haven't included Cowley only because just two and a half EFL seasons in that period. So, but but obviously with exactly the same caveat as you that w- would very much expect him. Um, to be on the shortlist in in a couple of years' time, although he might not be in the championship, of course, at that stage. Uh, I suppose going back a little bit, a couple of interesting names. Eddie Howe uh, was, I think, part of the question here, potentially. Uh, Oh, no, someone else tweeted with their top three and Howe was in it, which I thought was interesting. He started Mm. the decade winning League Two promotion with Bournemouth in May 2010, despite being under a transfer embargo. He left Burnley, uh, for Burnley rather, for 20 months or so, came back in 12-13, took Bournemouth up that year into the championship from League One, finished 10th in his first season and then won the championship the next year, which is exactly what Wilder did with Sheffield United finishing 10th and then winning or coming second the next year. Um, But of course, Howe hasn't managed a championship game since May 2015. So the whole second half of this decade, he's not been there. Sean Dyche has made a couple of of appearances with Burnley, of course, and two promotions with them. Steve Bruce has won two championship promotions in this time frame as well with Hull. Um, A couple of names who, who are, I would say, highly commended because they have achieved some great things in this decade, even if in the last few years, maybe... Um, it might not feel like that. People like Kenny Jacket with a couple of League One promotions, Millwall and, uh, and Wolves, Simon Grayson, of course. Billy Davies had a spell with Nottingham Forest where although he pretty much alienated every single person at the club and himself, uh, you know, did have some success and played some good football. Nigel Pearson uh, in this time frame has had a couple of promotions. Paul Lambert, of course, Nigel Adkins. Steve Evans, double promotion with uh, with Rotherham as well. Um, here's a quick one before we move on. 
There are three managers who have managed over 400 games in the championship in this time. Um, who do you think the four managers are who have managed over 400 games in the championship this decade? I wish you'd given me some time to... Um, well, you don't get time in a quiz, mate. That's think how about quizzes it. work. Oh, anyway, yeah, you've, you've got one. one. Hold Neil, on. Neil Warnock's one, so you've already, yeah. you've already said him. Okay. Um, I really don't want to get it wrong as well. Uh, 400 in a decade. So basically... Essentially, these are the only guys who have managed for like eight or nine seasons in this time. Neither of them currently working in the championship. One of them enjoying a bit of media work, uh, and the, including a new podcast, and the other uh, heading into the Euro 2020 qualifying playoffs with the national team. Mick McCarthy. Correct. And... Ian Holloway. Ian Holloway. Well done. Well done. Got there eventually. Um, where are we going next? Oliver asked us to pick an 11 from the EFL, which includes four championship players, four League One players, and three League Two players. Now, we're having to rattle through these last few questions, so I'm going to present the team that we've put together, but I really want to hear from you guys at NTT20Pod because it is not easy, and I'm interested in the strategy here. I just started with the three League Two players and worked my way up from there. So at, in goal, I've got Ansi Yakula of Bristol Rovers. In League Two, uh, the right-back Perry and G makes my team, alongside League One's Rob Dickey and Championship's Ben White, uh, and League One's Joe Jacobson, that back line, and G, Dickey, White, Jacobson. Uh, my double pivot in midfield is Calvin Phillips, who I just love, and Ebu Adams of Forest Green, who I think should be playing at a higher level and can do a bit of everything. And then three behind the striker. I mean, this could be a disaster in reality. Marcus Madison off the right, Matthias Pereira of West Brom through the middle, and Danny Mayer drifting off the left. It's going to get very congested in those central areas, and they probably aren't the right fit for my striker but my striker is is Mitrovic top scorer in the championship um, simply a, a sort of well just a top level player basically he shouldn't be playing in the, in any second tier um, so there's our team please tweet us at NTT20pod with your thoughts George if you could meet one player or manager in the EFL who would you meet and why does Wayne Rooney count yet no he hasn't well he hasn't officially joined yet but you can okay. say Rooney I mean, I'd like Rooney. Bielsa would be an easy answer, but I don't know if we'd be able to to, to speak very clearly to each other. Um, so I'm going to say Joseph Barton, just because I'd like to pick his brains for a while. Really? Joe, you think mm. you and Joey would have a good good conversation, do you? Well, um, we, we, met, we met last year at Cheltenham. So you have um, met him. But I'd like to kind of chat with him. Hold on, he doesn't count. I, 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 I was going to say Ethan Ebanks-Landell, but I've already met him, so <laughs> I can't possibly. Um, I would like to meet Joe Lolly. He likes football manager. He likes golf. He's got a great career story and a lovely left peg. So I think that would be good. Manager wise, uh, I'd like to have a few pints with Lee Bowyer. I think seems like a good bloke and has had an interesting life and career. Uh, but it's probably got to be Mike Flynn, doesn't it? Just, just me and Flynnie grinning at each other, talking absolute nonsense and reliving the last few years with him as, as Newport manager and me as his, his biggest fan. Talking of football manager, George, Tommy wants to know our football manager thoughts. Favourite addition for you? Oh, 102, without question. Very, very easy, that one. That was the same for me, and especially because you and I used to play that one together, which is quite... I know, when it first came out. <laughs> quite sweet. That was really the beginning of our friendship with 0102. I, wonder, I remember a brilliant PSV team I had. Um, Favourite player who never lived up to their potential in real life? 
or Tomadeira, given that he didn't even exist. Um, but definitely him. <laughs> Tomadeira, it's Rhys Murphy for me. I had him on loan at St Albans from Arsenal. Uh, and he scored 60 goals in the Conference South. So I thought he was going to be the next big thing. What about greatest achievement for you? I'm presuming if it's not Oxford winning the Champions League, no, I'd be a bit not. disappointed. It was when I, I downloaded it a couple of years ago and I took over SC Vell. I think you might remember this. Oh, yeah. And I was planning on having a really long game where I spent ages trying to make them the best team in, in, in kind of the world. And I did it in about six seasons with Richard <laughs> Rufus playing centre back. Brilliant. So that has, to be, that has to be the one. What was that on? 0102? I'm Scott Huckabee wide, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm going to have to re-download these, aren't I? Um, uh, greatest achievement for me, I think probably more recent ones, weirdly, where, uh, you know, in the old days, I used to do the classic sort of Bristol Rovers to the Champions League and that sort of thing, but proper youth development these days. Um, Peterhead, I think, probably for me in two, two years ago. Um, didn't buy anyone and ended up challenging the old firm about 15 years later with a, with a fully self-produced team. So that was quite fun. That was sort of turning us into the athletic Bilbao of, uh, of, of Northern Scotland. Uh, and lastly, lovely banter this from Gab Sutton. Uh, he asked who the best-dressed guy on the pod is. And that's a nice reference to this weekend's Quest highlight show where I sat next to Paul Tisdale of, uh, of, of Ted Baker fame. And Colin, in his wow, with his great humour, introduced Paul Tisdale as the best-dressed man in the EFL alongside Ali Maxwell, who's not even the best-dressed guy on his own podcast. Nice! <laughs> <laughs> I missed it. That's amazing. Um, and uh, do you know what? I, I, I can't argue. You are a better-dressed man than me. I'm working That's on it. superb. But it's, uh, it's inarguable. George, I hope you have a lovely day. I'm looking forward to talking to you later on in the week on The Betting Show. Guys, make sure you're following us on social media, Twitter at NTT20pod, but also Instagram, uh, the same, at NTT20pod. We're going on a bit of a trip next week. I, I guess we're calling it the NTT20 AGM, um, but we're heading to Spain, and I don't really know why, but I'm really excited about it. We've got a couple of days, and we're going to be documenting the trip, of course, over on Instagram, at NTT20pod. Should be quite good fun. Um, and yeah, hope you guys have a good week. Thank you for your patience here. This Monday pod had to become a Tuesday pod. Uh, thank you for all your questions that you sent in uh, and for your continued support of the podcast. It is much appreciated, and we'll talk again later on in the week.